This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We get to begin the show talking about something that might be very near and dear to you. When you go to bed at night, what is one of the nicest feelings? You take that duvet that's on your bed, if in fact you sleep with a duvet, and you kind of pull that up. If you can get that up over a shoulder, I think you sleep better. I have one of these little trackers that I wear around. It tracks all kinds of stuff. It tracks sleep. And because I'm a curious guy, I've been experimenting with stuff. And so I'll experiment with my arm over top of the duvet or whatever it is that we have on our bed. I think it's a duvet. I'm not sure. Might be just a comforter. Is that a thing? I don't know. Uh, So I put my arm over top of it. I get a worse sleep. I get a better sleep when I take that thing and I pull it right on up to my ear for whatever reason. And I know you move around at night, but I get better sleeps when I hide underneath the duvet. So we're going to talk about duvets because there's something very important going around in the world of duvets right now. And it's something that I don't want to have alarm you, but seriously, let's find out more about this. It's called Feather Duvet Lung. Feather Duvet Lung. Is is that a new kind of sleeping apparatus? I don't think so. Joining us right now is Dr. Kerry Johansson, a clinical assistant professor of medicine and the director of clinical research in interstitial lung disease At the University of Calgary, someone who knows lungs perhaps better than anyone else we've ever spoken with on London Live. Dr. Johansson, thank you so much for taking some time out for us. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, let's let's kind of look at our our lungs and how they're performing. And everybody take a nice deep breath in Ah, and let that out. Okay, so we've got our lungs going. I think we're ready to find out what feather duvet lung happens to be. Uh, can you define this for us, please, Dr. Johansson? Yeah, you bet. So it's funny because it's something that I see all the time, and I guess my perspective is kind of skewed, so I'm excited that there's a story out there about this disease because it's not uncommon in my very unusual world. So feather duvet lung is a form of a disease called hypersensitivity pneumonitis, or HP. And HP itself is a form of interstitial lung disease. So HP is a lung condition that arises when people breathe in certain antigens or exposures. Um, And it can happen over a short time period and people can become acutely unwell. So this was a story that was highlighted in um, the British Medical Journal. So somebody gets, say, for example, a new feather duvet, they sleep with it for a few days, they become acutely unwell with breathlessness, cough, fever, and they are diagnosed with HP or feather duvet lung. And other forms of it, it can be a much more chronic kind of sneak up on you type of disease that can happen and evolve over months to years and can lead to scarring and irreversible uh, lung fibrosis or scarring of the lung. So I think of it like it's not a it's not a true allergy, you know, from an immunological perspective, but it's like an allergic reaction to something that you're breathing in. And we know that the two most common causes of HP are birds and it's their feathers and the proteins that are mixed in. So something you can get from feathers in a duvet. So birds and mold. And the mold can be from a variety of different sources. 
Wow. And all of those things that you mentioned, starting from the cough, the fever, uh, things that are, are chronic scarring, I, I think no one right now is saying, could I have that for my lungs, please? You don't want any of these things. So how how is this actually happening? Yeah. So, you know, there's something about um, the type of exposure and it it doesn't obviously doesn't happen to everybody, right? So if you think of all the people who have feather disease on their bed, a very small proportion of those people will get this type of lung disease. But the problem is you never know if you're one of the people who might be susceptible to it. So it's hard to um you know, it's hard to predict what we generally you know, in my clinic everybody's coming in with some sort of a lung disease and and so obviously we would tell them to get rid of any potential exposures from their environment. Um, but it's kind of, yeah, it's always, you know, one of those practical decisions, particularly in Canada where everybody has down, you know, a down coat of some sort. If it's freezing cold here, we're all going to be wearing feathers in our jackets. And, and you're asking yourself, should I be getting rid of this? And it's a, it can be a difficult question to answer. You know, we it was first described in pigeon breeders or bird fanciers, so people who actually, and this is still something that people do. I'm always shocked when I meet people who do it because you think, who's actually raising pigeons and then racing them? <laughs> but, but people totally do this, and they will have, people will have homes full of pigeons or parakeets or cockatiels, and they will come in with this lung condition. So that makes it really easier. Like, your bird is causing your lung disease. Like, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, if somebody's thinking about getting this or they don't actually have a disease, it's really hard to quantify the risk to be able to say, you are highly at risk of developing this one day. So in general, I tell people to try to avoid preventative exposures because I see the effects of it and they're they're pretty awful and often irreversible. So it's definitely something to think about and to be aware of the things that you're breathing in in your environment. Yeah, so as you're shopping, you might want to go for, and it's surprising to know that we actually are using so many feathers still in things like duvets or jackets or pillows. You would think, hey, with all of the polyform stuff that they've come up with, you you got to go a different way than feathers. Do you ever see it with anything outside of, of feather-related substances? Yeah, so so for with HP, um, so mold is a really common exposure. And it, so there's been a couple of cases that have been pretty highly publicized. You know, in the last 10 to 15 years, we've discovered this entity called hot tub lung. So, you know, I basically say you can take any two words and then put lung at the end of it, and you've got a cause of hypersensitivity, pneumonitis. It's a very dangerous world, but... So it's not just like it's not like any hot tub that you sit in, but it's often if there's contaminated water in um, in the piping, or if it's not you know maintained up to factory standards, and you're sitting in this soup and you're you're inhaling all these aerosolized types of bacteria and and molds. And the other highly publicized case was a case of bagpipe lung a few years ago. So. Um, wind instruments can get, if you don't clean them properly, you know, you think about it, people are breathing in the air that's coming around and circulating through either bagpipes or trombones or saxophones. And, you know, there's sort of famous case of this where this unfortunate man in the UK died of bagpipe lung after getting chronic fibrotic lung disease. What was identified was that his bagpipes were contaminated with mycobacteria and bacteria and molds and it had led to this chronic inflammation and fibrosis in his lungs. So there's lots of different causes of it. And we actually, um, it's, it's, there's such a long list and it's hard to remember them all in clinic. My colleagues and I made a, a website that's online called hplung.com. It's, you know, certainly not entirely comprehensive and lists 
all of the potential exposures and the number of times that cases have been published describing this in the scientific literature. So, you know, we certainly don't want people going to that and saying that everything that they could potentially be exposed to is causing all of their problems in life. But if they are suspected to have hypersensitivity pneumonitis, a very, you know, specific disease, and typically you'd be seeing a lung specialist to have this diagnosis established, it's a good resource to go to to see what's actually been published um, and is associated with this disease. HPLung.com. We're talking... We're talking with Dr. Carrie Johansson, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine and Director of Clinical Research in Interstitial Lung Disease at the University of Calgary. And we're talking about little things that, that can kind of get into your lungs and cause sensitivity and hypersensitivity, whether they be bird-related, mold-related. So in terms of actually diagnosing this, would it be a prolonged cough that you have? Would it would it be something that you just think, ah, something's not right here, shortness of breath, and then you get it checked out, and that's the only way you know that this is an issue? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and so there's the two forms. So when people are acutely unwell, they would be sick enough that they would not be sitting at home wondering. They would typically be, end up in the emergency department. So when farmers used to get this, when it was called farmer's lung, from pitching moldy hay, they would you know pitch this hay into the air and inhale you know thousands or millions of fungal spores that would lead to acute shortness of breath, chest pain. It'll you know end up in the emergency department. So. It has to be on the in the mind or in the thought process of the, the clinician assessing you. So the acute form of it, you're generally going to show up, and um, hopefully the, the physician seeing you is thinking, oh, I wonder if this could be HP, and then you'll figure it out based on the exposure. In the chronic form of it, the problem with lung diseases is they really only present with, you know, cough and, and breathlessness. So I think the important thing for, you know, people to remember and for the, the public to think about is it, it breathlessness and cough are not normal parts of aging. And so I think it's important to never just ignore that. I see a lot of my patients who are like, oh, I thought I was just getting old. They're like, oh, no, this has probably been evolving for many years now. I wish I'd seen you sooner. So just realizing that, you know, if you've had a change in your exercise tolerance, you've got this, like, new cough, you know, it's worth getting it checked out and have somebody listen to your lungs and, and think about this potential disease and, of course, all the other potential causes. Well, it's a great thing. I mean, we're taught with sepsis to, if you're concerned about something like that, just say it to the healthcare provider, just just so that it's out there, it's it's kind of on their mind. They may say, no, 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 you don't have to worry about that, but at least say that word. I guess another word we can say in this case is HP long. Walk in and say HP long, and <laughs> maybe, just maybe, that turns somebody in a direction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we really want to thank you for your time, Dr. Johansson. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Carrie Johansson, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine and Director of Clinical Research in Interstitial Lung Disease at the University of Calgary. I love how Dr. Johansson says you can basically take anything, put lung after it. Popcorn lung, we've heard that connected to vaping. Hot tub lung, feather duvet lung. But as she says, and this is kind of a great thing for all of us, as you start to get older, your lungs should still work the same way. Maybe you haven't been exercising quite enough and and maybe that kind of shrinks down your cardiovascular fitness. But other than that, you should be able to breathe in and breathe out. And if not, you get that checked out. And honestly, with something like sepsis, sepsis is one of those things that can just feel like the flu a little bit. And you think something's just not right. If you go and get checked out, just say the word. That's it. Just say the word 
And maybe that triggers something because you've got medical professionals who are looking at you thinking, well, it could be one of about 10 million things. So in diagnosing this, and at least you say the word. In this case, you say the word HP lung and they think, yeah, okay, the why not? Let's let's have a look and let's see what we see. I just won't wrote three things into a Twitter search. And those three things are fire, Mike, Babcock. And I can't believe how many polls are going on. Here's one that was introduced not too long ago. Uh, 69% say yes. 31% say no. Here's another poll. Uh, this one says, how long do you think it will take Detroit to rehire Mike Babcock once he is fired? All right. Uh, five seconds is leading in that poll. It has 35% of the vote. Here's some more. Here's another poll. Uh, this one, 82% in favor of firing Mike Babcock. And every Leaf fan who's weighing in on this seems really angry. Uh, here's an actual Twitter page. It only has 29 followers, but it's the Fire Babs Clock. People are just looking to capitalize in on this. Here's another Fire Mike Babcock, but the it's like the license plate. I can't believe this. If you go, and maybe you can answer this question for me. If you go to the license office and you ask for a personalized license plate and you want that personalized license plate to say, I don't know, uh, cutie, and cutie's gone, so you say, well, how about cutie with a K? How about cutie with a Q? What makes you pay the $300 or whatever it costs for that personalized license plate if you're not actually getting what you went for? You don't have to pay for a Twitter account, but somebody has spelled fire, F-Y-R-E, Mike Babcock. But you get the point. He bears the brunt of a lot of what the Leafs are going through right now. And I think what you need to do is you need to look at two things that were said yesterday. And one was said by Mike Babcock. The other was said by Tyson Berry, who's a defenseman with the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Leafs right now are in the middle of a five-game losing streak. They have one point in their last ten. They go to Vegas tonight, and Leaf fans are saying, well, this was the year to win the Stanley Cup, and they're not winning the Stanley Cup. They're not even in a playoff spot, and the world is, the sky is falling. Chicken Little, nowhere to be found. I don't even know where Chicken Little went when the sky uh, was falling in his mind. I think he was just running. So Leaf fans are feeling that the sky is falling. The two things that you have to look back about, number one, Tyson Berry talked about this being a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. In other words, playing in Toronto. This guy played in Colorado. You got the mountains. You know, you have a very friendly place. Not that many reporters. The Altitude Sports Network is kind of a partner of the Avalanche. So everything's all friendly. They don't have to worry about that scrutiny. And Mike Babcock said, if my kids were younger... I wouldn't coach in Toronto. Now, that, that was a very interesting statement that he made. It says a lot. If my kids were younger, I wouldn't coach in Toronto. He knows that he can take the brunt of what comes at you. There are two very difficult places to play in the National Hockey League, two of them. One is Toronto, and one is Montreal. And you can go ahead and say, well, the Montreal Canadiens won a Stanley Cup in 1993. Montreal Canadiens won a Stanley Cup in 1986. Yeah, two words. Patrick Waugh 
Without him, you're rewinding back to when they fleeced the California Golden Seals to get Guy Lafleur and built a juggernaut because there were managers in the league that were clueless. And they had basically French-Canadian status throughout parts of the glory years in Montreal that allowed them to take French-Canadian players ahead of other, other teams. So that exists. That's part of the Montreal Canadiens mystique. Sorry, Montreal Canadiens fans. That's a thing. So Montreal and Toronto combined, if you take away Patrick Waugh and a whole lot of luck in 1993, they, you could argue, haven't won a championship since the 70s. What do they have in common? Incredible scrutiny. And that incredible scrutiny is not the reason that they have not won, but it is a factor in them not winning. Because what does it do? Well, it gets people thinking. And it gets players playing certain ways. And right now, the Leafs are stuck in one of those ways. When things are going well, it's great. It's very easy. In fact, it's uplifting. That scrutiny can be very helpful. But it can play the other way. When you have to answer questions day after day after day about what is going wrong on the ice, you begin to do something that is very detrimental to winning. And that thing is playing not to lose. You don't want to make a mistake because you don't want to be called out. You don't want to make a mistake because you don't want to feel the the question wrath of, oh, well, you did that, so, you know, take us back to that play. And you start playing a little tighter. And this can happen even if there isn't that scrutiny, but it's magnified. The pressure is magnified. Everything is magnified in the big media markets. So you start playing not to lose. And the Leafs right now look like a team playing not to lose instead of a team playing to win. They're missing a nice little energy spark that they can get from Mitch Marner. He's always great to have in the lineup because he's just having fun. And right now they're a team that is not having fun. Does some of that go to the coach? Yes. Some of it does go to the coach. Does a lot of it go to the players? Yes. Most of it goes to the players. What are the Leafs doing wrong right now? They don't start very well in games. Well, who is that on? Does Mike Babcock wear skates? No. The players wear the skates. And they're the ones that are coming out slow. They're the ones that are fighting from behind all the time. And it's not working. And you can look at the goal differential, first period and second period. This is a team that can score late in games because all of a sudden that pressure is off. Well, we've already screwed up enough. Now, might as well do what we do best, show off our skills, and things start going well. Sometimes it's too little too late. But that's the kind of thing that they're doing. They're playing not to lose instead of playing to win. Can a coach get that turned around? Sure. You know, but it's up to the players. These are professionals. The coach can say whatever they want. They can make technical changes. They can make lineup changes. But ultimately, this is a belief system. And you know what you do for the Maple Leafs? Nothing. You change nothing. You let them get through this. Because this is a team thing. It's early in the season. All is not lost. This team has enough skill to come back if they were out of the playoffs in February. That's not a big deal. They can light up a big winning streak at any time. They've got all kinds of skill. Their defense, eh, it's not as good as it could be. Their backup goaltending situation, eh, Frederick Anderson better not get hurt. But overall, this is a team that has the skill. They have to get through this little flat period, and they have to do that themselves. And once they do, they will build from it. They will be stronger for it. You go in and change the coach, you give this whole period of time an excuse. And that's not what it needs. It needs the patience to work through and that's what they're doing right now so as a leaf fan the best thing you can do is not tweet about it is not start a poll about firing mike babcock 
Best thing you can do is have what Leaf fans have become famous for. Patience. Okay, let's get to a topic right now that is a very difficult topic to deal with. Because it deals with end-of-life stuff. But I think what we all need to do is realize there has yet to be a person on this earth who has been able to live to a thousand. Even though there is a doctor out there, and I'm not sure whether they have enough evidence for this yet, but they seem to feel that the first person to live to a thousand is alive today. Jeff Bezos, maybe? You'd need money. You would need an awful lot of money because it would, what, involve buying cyber parts so that you could just basically have whatever makes up you on the inside and all the outside would be redone? I'm thinking that's how it would be. Jeff Bezos apparently wants to get to space, though. He wants to colonize space. That's what Amazon's for. Did you know that? I don't know that he said that in so many words, but a lot of people around him have said, yeah, that's, that's ultimately his goal is to colonize space with great big tubes. That would be like Hawaii. The Atlantic had a great piece on him. So if uh, if you want to see the story in behind Jeff Bezos, you have to check that out. But we aren't able to get to a thousand, and most of us will not even come close. But if you've had to deal with someone's affairs at the end of life, you know that even if they have it laid out as brilliantly as possible. So they've got everything in order. Everything's just kind of there on a flash drive. Here's where to find this. Here's where to find this. Call this person. Call this person. Call this person. That it still isn't easy. It still is a very difficult time because there is the grief and because there are always just little things. You know, if you've got more than $9,000 in a bank account, you've got to have it probated typically. And that takes a long time. And some of the big banks, depending on how much money is in an account, will say, yeah, you know, we uh, we could get this done, but uh, here's how it feels. They'd rather drag their heels so that they get to keep that money and earn a little bit more interest off it for just a little while longer. I'm not saying I have any proof of that, but it sure feels like that sometimes if you've been through it. So we have to have conversations to know, okay – how does this play out? How do we want this to play out? And it's a really difficult conversation to have. We've got the holidays coming up where typically you're going to have a lot of people in the same room, basically all the people that would be involved in an end-of-life discussion. And they're all going to be there, but it's have a holiday. That's what we're doing instead, and that's fine. But if you can take a minute or two and have a conversation, you are going to defy numbers that have been put together through a survey that was done by Arbor Memorial. They talked to Canadians, and they wondered exactly how many have had a conversation about the end of their life, what they want, who should look after it. And this can be compounded by a lot of things. If you've got a blended family, that makes things kind of really difficult because you may have people standing up saying, no, 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 no. If it's not laid out correctly, they're going to jump in. And one side of the family will say no, or one former spouse and one current spouse have to get together on things. This can become really difficult. So if you just have a tiny conversation with a few witnesses around, then everybody can point back and say, hey, remember when we all got together for the holidays in 2019? Remember that conversation we had that sounded like it sucked when it began? It was going to be a bad conversation, but then, whoa, then it turned into something really eye-opening that helped us out 
right now, that's what you wind up having. So let's have a conversation about this right now. Dustin Wright is with Arbor Memorial. They, again, did the survey. We'll get to some of those results, and we'll get to some of those solutions that can be offered up to make this maybe a little bit easier than it actually sounds so that you can still have a holly and still have a talk that gets people what it is that they want when that time arrives. Dustin joins us on London Live right now. It is great to have you with us. Dustin, thank you for joining us on the show today. Ah, Thanks for having me, Mike. There's that old line, he who dies with the most toys wins. And in our lives, uh, we accumulate an awful lot of toys over time. And we don't necessarily spend a lot of time talking about when we're not going to be playing with those anymore. And this survey is absolutely fascinating in the idea that it probably kickstarts all of us into thinking, okay, uh, what am I leaving to the people who will be taking care of my things, my affairs, when I'm no longer here? When you look at the results of this survey, what jumps out to you? Well, really, it's that almost 30%, 36% of people really haven't talked about their final wishes. And I think that's, that's a challenge because not only are they leaving their loved ones to figure out all the details at a time when they're grieving, but when you start looking at blended families, it can be increased potential for some disputes, disagreements, because you have so many different people who have had an important moment in that person's life Again, it can get very confusing and trying during a time when everybody's grieving. Boy, I can't even imagine. If you think about siblings, sometimes will struggle with things like this. And, hey, I was told this, or wait a minute, I was told this. Then you add in people who maybe aren't necessarily all that close. And then, do you see this on, you know, in, in your line of work? We do. We do every day. And this is, you know, this is the real value of our funeral directors and cemeterians where they can sit down with all the different stakeholders in the family and try to help the, the one person or the two people that legally have the responsibility to make the decisions on behalf of the deceased loved one to really navigate through what are all the wishes, what are all the needs. And, you know, it's not an easy process for, for any of the parties involved. And, and this is really why we talk about not just having those conversations with all those family members, but working to put a pre-plan in place, pre-arrangements. That way, all of your wishes have already been captured. You know that your funeral and cemetery is going to be what you want it to be. And regardless of how your family situation may change over time, those wishes are already there, written, ready for everybody to just rely on. We're talking with Dustin Wright from Arbor Memorial, and Arbor Memorial has done a survey that came back and and had some eye-popping numbers, and Dustin has pointed to one of those things that more than one-third of Canadians have not talked about final wishes. One of the other things, nearly four in ten only know if their partner or spouse wants to be buried or cremated. That's that's kind of that that big one. Never mind all the passwords that each of you have stored away here, there, and all over. Just let's let's make sure I know is it buried or cremated. So how do we deal with something like this, Dustin? It's great, great question. So how do people basically start the conversation? Because that's really what uh, the most important part is. People beginning to have that. And let's let's look at the adult children talking with their parents, because that's where we find there's the most interest. The adult children know they're going to be involved, they care for their parents, but they really don't know. So what we advocate for is finding those moments 
in family events or other times that you're sitting down, often recency really helps. So if someone close to your the adult family's uh, parents or even the adult children has passed, it's a trigger to be able to have that conversation. And it's just getting the conversation going. You know, a lot of parents uh, can be a little standoffish. They, they may say, hey, are you trying to get rid of me? But uh, <laughs> really what it is is it's out of care. And if you can find just those trigger points, those moments, either at family events or because uh, uh, death has occurred close to you or your family, it's enough to get the conversation started. And once you know uh, really what the person wants, then it's a matter of just helping coach them to say, why don't we put these arrangements in place? Why don't we get this taken care of today rather than waiting for someday? I think all of us are trying to think of of the questions that maybe go outside of the, do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? Uh, What other questions do we need to be ready to ask in that moment? Well, in that moment, you know, we're starting with the two, the two big ones, which is buried or cremated. It's a, it seems like the easiest question to ask, yet the most complicated, because some people don't always understand what does all that mean, and, and, and is one easier than the other or not easier? Uh, that's the starting point. From there, it's, do you want to have a service? Do you want to have a reception, something involving food, something involving family? Who would you like there? And, you know, would you, what would you like your monument to be? There's all sorts of wonderful questions they can do that with, they can engage in. But what I would rarely suggest is sit down with a funeral or cemetery professional. They understand all the questions that they know inevitably are going to need to be asked and answered by the family. They can present all the options, and then that way uh, the adults or the adult children together can make decisions that are meaningful for them. Now, what if you've got, let's say, this would seem to be, in order to kind of generalize, a dad thing, and a dad says, you know, I, I don't want a big fuss made. I, no, no, I don't, I don't want a monument. I just No big fuss whatsoever. Just uh, nothing. Uh, that's, that's it. Uh, what do you do with that? Because when the time does come, there are going to be people who say, no, no, I know you had that conversation. That was just dad. He was just talking like that. That's not what he really wants. Here's what we're going to do. You order this, and you do this, and you create this, and we need this. How do you kind of figure out what the wishes are and then make them work? Well, that's, again, you know, I'll come back to if there's already a, a plan in place or if the adult children meet that, you know, keep it simple for me. I think that the big question for the family members is, well, what does that mean exactly? Help me understand what that means, because it is a very broad statement, and simple to one person may be simple, completely different meaning to someone else. The second thing is, as, you know, as funeral directors and cemeterians come across this every day, uh, dad just wanted to keep it simple. And they're going to ask the exact same questions I did. Well, what does that mean to the individual? Tell me about their life. Tell me about their interest. Tell me about uh, moments and memories that you've had. And then trying to understand from the family who are making the decisions, what does simple mean to them? And then putting in place something that's meaningful. We're talking with Dustin Wright from Arbor Memorial, and Arbor Memorial has done a survey of Canadians 
to see just kind of how prepared we are for the conversation nobody likes to have, but everybody needs to have, and that is, here's what I want done when I'm gone, or what would you like done when you are gone? It's never easy, and as Dustin points out, sometimes when there is maybe a, another unfortunate passing in the family, it, that brings an opportunity to actually talk about this. Now, with a blended family, you mentioned the challenges there. What typically do you see that might be different in a blended family situation that you wouldn't have in a non-blended family situation? Well, within a blended family situation, you have, uh, let's use the example of dad passes. Well, dad was, uh, has adult children who he has with their mother, his first wife, but now he has a second wife. And often, uh, both the first wife and second wife, even though they're divorced, often have a lot of relationships still with that individual. They've raised children together, and now you also have the adult children who are there with dad and mom and his new wife trying to make decisions and understand what would dad have wanted. And I think that's where you have all those different personalities coming together, all those different uh, touch points in that person's life, trying to make decisions about uh, what he would have wanted. And that's why the blended family, you're adding more people into the conversation and those different perspectives. So again, this comes back to why having those conversations with the family members from all aspects of the blended family is important, but also getting those prearrangements in place so that as you're, the dynamics within your family change, no matter how, um, how much of a blended family you are, uh, your wishes are in writing, and that way they can rely on that. Dustin Wright with us from Arbor Memorial. Dustin, in a legal sense, if somebody has a will, there will be a point person. There will be either a power of attorney or I'm trying to think of of the exact legal term for the person who is is basically the executor. I don't think they use executor too much anymore. But how much does that person factor in in this kind of setting? Absolutely. So the legal representative of the individual being the executor or executrix is uh, absolutely responsible to make the decision. That is the legal person who can do that. Um, obviously, in a marriage, often that is the spouse. Uh, sometimes uh, that is designated to a child, an adult child or family friend, but that is the person who we have to take a lot of our direction from. Uh, in terms of making decision on behalf of the loved one. But it's often, if it isn't the immediate spouse or an adult child, often we will have everybody come together who are important to that person's life to help uh, craft and shape and make the decisions. And the, the challenge there with the will, of course, is that the will is read afterwards. So if you put your wishes of your funeral and cemetery arrangements in the will, it may not be found until after the funeral. So that's why we always encourage putting those pre-plans in place, letting your executor or executrix know what, that, what those arrangements are so that when they do speak on your behalf, they're fully knowledgeable what those are. Dustin, thank you so much for all of the information today and in starting this conversation so that hopefully other conversations begin. Thank you very much, Mike. That's Dustin Wright from Arbor Memorial. And a tricky conversation, not necessarily the happiest one, but it's one that if you have it, trust me, it's one that if you have it, you're going to be more thankful for having had it, and it's not going to be as bad as you think. And then you even get into, well, hey, you know, you don't have to be 96 in order for this to be a thing. You can have this conversation when you're 24 and say, yeah, well, this is, this is what I believe. 
and it, and it helps to have it. It's one of those weird ones, but try it out with your family. I'm telling you, and it isn't that bad. And it actually leads to other conversations. You'll you'll have moments. I I'm just I'm not going to promise it, but you'll have some moments. Trust me. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from one to three. 